Welcome to episode three of the Into the Wilderness podcast. As usual, you're joined by myself, Daryl Pace, and my brother, Byron. I'll be looking after the quality of the audio again today, and I'm promised I'll be getting some more airtime in the next few weeks. On today's show, we have a professional stalker and instructor from Ayrshire, along with a factor from Dalhousie Estates. This week, our topics are going to be mainly focused around the importance of deer management. We'll be touching on a few other aspects as well, like the recent E. coli outbreak by a Dundee-based game dealer, as well as the importance of deer management qualifications and whether they should be an integral part of owning a rifle if you want it for hunting. Lastly, we will also be looking at the lead ammunition debate and discuss whether we should be using non-lead ammunition for hunting in the UK. This podcast is brought to you once again by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. Welcome everybody to part three of our Into the Wilderness podcast. This week we've got Chris Dalton joining us over a Skype call uh, over in Ayrshire. And in the studio we have Richard Cook. Um, factor of Dalhousie Estate. Um, we're going to follow a very similar f- format to what we normally do. We're going to find out who, who each of the each of our guests are, uh, what they do, how they've got where 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 they are today, and then go through a, a few questions that I've got for them with regard to uh, various groups that they're they're part of. Particularly, deer management is going to be a big theme of today's podcast. And then at the end, we've taken um, some questions from some people over social media who have some questions for our guests. So we'll we'll tackle that at the end. So first of all, if I I start off with you, Richard, uh, you're here with us today. Can you tell us uh, what you you actually do? I mentioned that you're you're a factor of Dalhousie Estate, but what does that entail? Everyone's heard of a factor, but what does a factor do? Well, it's rather an old-fashioned term. Uh, I tend to call myself general manager. As you say, uh, I manage Dalhousie Estates, which is in the east of Scotland and is a mixed agricultural and sporting estate. Covering a, covering a pretty broad range of sporting, from fishing through deer stalking, uh, low ground shooting, and grouse shooting. Uh, my other day job, if you call it that, or I've got two of them actually, is I'm the chair of the Association of Deer Management Groups, and also chair of Lowland Deer Network Scotland. And they are mirror organisations representing the deer sector. The association covers the Red Deer Open Hill Range, which is really the north and west of Scotland in broad terms and the Lowland Deer Network, which was a much more recent organisation set up in 2011. ADMG was set up in, in uh, 1992. The Lowland Deer Network uh, covers the south and east of Scotland through the central belt and is really primarily roe deer territory, although the other species of deer are to be found in pockets throughout that area too. Oh, yeah, I, I want to ask you about uh, the two groups, and I know Chris has a certain involvement as well. Uh, a little bit later on, can you tell me how, how did you how did you get to to where you are today? What is your sort of brief life story? Uh, my cousin, for example, I, he kind of does what you do now, but in a very junior form, uh, further up north. And I know that he he just finished a, a degree a year or two ago at Aberdeen uh, University. I, I can't remember exactly what the title was, but how, how did you? What was your process to get where you okay, are? Okay, born in Northern Ireland, um, born and brought up in Northern Ireland. Uh, went to Queen's University Belfast, did an arts degree, uh, worked on farms throughout my um, growing years, so to speak, and really I think I always knew that I wanted to work in a land-related business. 
So in addition to my degree, I switched to a professional training with the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors and became a Chartered Surveyor in the Rural Division. And I've been managing estates in the east of Scotland since 1977. Um, uh, And I've been doing a number of estates in my present job. I've been for over 25 years uh, and like it very much. It's a very fulfilling career, actually. But my other role, my dear-related role, uh, really started in 1979 when I was asked to be the secretary of the East Grampian Deer Management Group. And it became one of the better groups, and I guess there were various people, including ourselves, who were suggesting the industry as a whole needed to get coordinated and organised. So in 1992, we launched the Association of Deer Management Groups with me as its secretary, and uh, which I did for 17 years. And the, gradually, we got all the deer management groups, there are about 45 of them at the moment, uh, into that organisation. Our members are, are deer groups rather than individuals, but each one of those deer groups contains anything from five to 25 um, estates or landholdings of one sort or another. Um, so that takes me all over the country. It's quite a political role because deer are of, of great political interest, uh, particularly in the Scotland of today with land reform very much in the, in the air. Um, and uh, so, for example, last week I found myself in front of the Rural Affairs Committee giving evidence in relation to the land reform bill. Um, and uh, I've had a number of other meetings like that as well, and will continue to do so, I suspect. Mm-hmm. And Chris, if I, if I just go over to you, just very similar, similar questions. You are now, I suppose your, your title would be, you're a, you're a professional stalker. I know you, you take a lot of people out, but just give uh, everybody an idea of what your sort of main business is. I, I know you do a lot of training. Yeah, I mean, my main business, we, we actually set up uh, with my wife, Anne, and run South Asia Stoking, uh, which has been, we've probably been operating now for just over 10 years. Um, primarily and initially, it was because I perceived a, 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 a very much of a gap in the market for actually training or introducing people to the sport of, sto- of stoking. I've been involved in that throughout most of my life, shooting life with sort of game shooting, etc., and also very keen on the sort of training aspects. So we really started the business initially um, with a view to, to, to letting people have a go and try and sort of put them on the right road, the ethical road for deer management. Um, and what I didn't sort of anticipate when I started this was that all these people will, will, will really, even today, come back because they want to follow the training process right the way through DSC Level 1, DSC Level 2, and then get out onto some ground themselves and actually sort of manage deer. So an awful lot of the people that come to us now are people that I actually started and uh, took them out uh, and showed them the, the sort of pointed end from the blunt end of a rifle sort of 11 years ago. Um, that's still my, you know, the big, big emphasis of the business. Although we do, we do do all sorts of all forms of sports, and we arrange sports for all people from overseas and right across the globe. But the the, the real key element and core element of this business is is, is stalking, deer stalking. Now I know from knowing you for a, a couple of years that your your story of how you got to where you are now doesn't follow hunting from from day one to to where you are today. So can you just give me a, a brief do- rundown of that so everybody can understand how you've got to where you are? Yeah, I mean, I, I, come from a, I come from a country background anyway, but my family weren't really involved in shooting. Whilst we were farming and I was a great countryman, my grandfather was a horticulturist. Um, my, my, my main sort of thrust, if you like, there was growing things. Um, and I took a completely different career change. I did want to get into gamekeeping originally when I was about 15. 
16, but my father sort of said to me, look, you know, very difficult to get in. Um, it's a vocation. You're not going to earn any money. But if you really want to do it, um, I was doing quite well at school, finish your exams, get some A-levels behind you, uh, and then and then try and get into gamekeeping. But he, he sort of gave me a time frame and effectively said, if you haven't achieved that by whatever, promise me you'll look at something else. Well, I couldn't get into gamekeeping, so I ended up with a career in the Air Force. Um, continued with my sporting sort of activities, albeit... Um, slightly limited depending on where you were operationally. Um, and I really got into stalking really from retiring um, as a commissioned officer in the Air Force. So I, that's when I kind of started. So I came to the to, to the day stalking um, part of my life quite late. Uh, and from then on, I suppose it's probably taken over to the point where, as I've already said, we started the business about 10 years ago and uh, you know, I now make a living out of it. And uh, Richard was talking about uh, various deer groups, which I'm going to go into uh, a little bit more detail a, a bit later on. But you have some sort of involvement in a deer group down in your neck of the woods, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm very passionate about deer, deer management, the ethical sort of, of, of sustainability of, of deer control. I'm a great advocate of stalking. I don't think we should shy away from, from sometimes bad publicity and rubbish that you see in the press. I think we should be out there, you know, um, fighting our corner, quite frankly, um, everything we should eat. Um, I actually, I was on the periphery of deer management, the deer management groups, but what actually drew me into it was um, I actually was uh, asked to do a little bit of a sort of guest speaking slot at one of the Lowland Deer Management Group meetings at which Richard was, was present. I was quite impressed um, with what I heard there um, and felt that really, you know, maybe in the area that, that I operate in, South Asia, there was definitely a lack of, 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 of coordination. Um, and, and I've got to say probably not through the want of, of, of other groups trying, um, but the Southwest Group was very large. Um, South sort of West Deer Management Group was absolutely massive and very difficult to probably connect with sort of local landowners. So um, possibly foolishly, I don't know, started making noises about maybe we ought to try and, and make that a little bit smaller. Maybe approaching landowners that we know and perhaps um, perhaps get you know move the sort of the, the lowland deer management um, side of the of the, um, the political spectrum forward. Um, and we're actually well down the road now to splitting up the original Southwest Deer Management Group into effectively three sort of sectors, um, and hopefully uh, with a little bit more sort of local knowledge, local contact, maybe just trying to push that forward a little bit more. Um, we've had initial meetings now with, with the group of landowners in the South Asia Wigtonshire area, which is kind of where our little group will probably operate. Uh, and that's been very positive so far, which was well attended. Uh, we're now at the next level of that. We're, we're wanting to get a, a meeting together with um, with the stalkers, if you like, at the grassroots level, and pull them into the into the into the group uh, and, and take it forward. So we're, we're well down the road now, hopefully, of, of establishing, we think, uh, a good proactive and lowland group. Just to follow on from what uh, Chris has just said, Richard, looking at the, the Lowland Deer Network in particular, can you just explain exactly what is involved in that? Maybe just reiterate what you were, were saying before. In terms of, from somebody standing outside these groups, what are they trying to achieve? And is there any kind of uh, public interaction in terms of the benefits of setting up these groups from a management perspective? 
Uh, well, in answering that question, Baron, I'd like to, uh, I need to compare lowland groups with highland groups and uh, because they're quite different in character. I mean, the first thing that's different is that highland groups are really focused on red deer management. Red deer are a herding species and they're managed by all the land holdings over which they range. So the deer management groups are basically geographically identified within, with a particular deer range. The lowland groups are different because they deal primarily with roe deer, which are territorial, don't go very far afield, family groups. Um, and they can be managed at a much more local level. So the people who are involved in the highland groups tend to be the landowners and land managers on big-scale acreages. In the lowlands, you're talking about a quite different um, environment where you've got small farms, little bits of woodland, big areas of woodland forest enterprise, for example, um, ma major landowners in the lowlands, um, bits of land that are owned by local authorities and public bodies, uh, forestry company land. So you've got a much... Um, more complicated jigsaw, if you like. And the way that the management works there in, in group form, and we're really only just beginning to get groups going in the lowlands, and the one that Chris referred to has launched this year and is looking very promising. Good leadership there, Chris, thank you. Um, is, is first of all to break down some barriers because lowland deer managers, I'm sure I don't need to tell you, are quite secretive. They like to keep, play their cards close to the chest, not let anybody else know what ground they've got or what they're shooting off it in case somebody steals in behind when their eyes are closed. Um, and that sort of cultural secrecy actually works against collaborative management. And what both organisations are about is really people collaborating with each other. Neither ADMG nor LDNS are there to tell people how to do their jobs because they're all much more professional and expert than I am. Um, but it's really to add value by getting people to work together. Um, and in the lowlands, I've been immensely impressed by the how seriously and professionally individuals who just manage deer on a personal interest basis take their training and their safety and all aspects of professionalism and good practice and welfare and uh, Chris used the word ethical behaviour. I think it's a very good word to use about people who are conscientious in their deer management. So the lowland thing is just getting off the stocks in a sense. We've got 10 deer management groups. We actually call them lowland deer groups to distinguish them from deer management groups because they're different in character um, and they don't have complete geographic co cover of, I mean, the Wigtonshire South Ayrshire group, for example, will have bits of ground managed by members of the group, but there'll be lots of bits that aren't. And the objective will be to fill in the gaps over a period of time so that everybody who's managing deer in a geographic area, as in a highland group, is really pointing the same way and trying to achieve the same, same objectives. Chris, if I can take that to you, and can you explain what are the consequences of not having this sort of cohesive network of management in terms of low ground in particular? I mean, I know certainly, you know, where I live, it probably still in, in some places, some, in some places it's really well joined together and other pockets it's, it's less so well joined together where maybe one person who has the stalking on a few farms doesn't speak to the guy next door who's stalking. And obviously, as you know, with Rodia, there's always going to be a crossover. So you really should be um, talking to your neighbors and making sure that what you're doing is in the kind of greater good of the, the whole area, which I, I guess is one of the purposes of these groups. But what, is the, what are the consequences of not doing this? I think the consequences, I mean, deer can be de demonized a little bit, um, and, and that's what I don't like. And the consequences of this lack of sort of communication and coordination that we're all trying to achieve um, would, would sort of not be helpful. I mean, there is there's quite a lot of um, there's a political agenda at the moment uh, with regard to a lot of the forestation and planting schemes which need to go ahead in Scotland, and trees need to get away. 
on these planting schemes, a lot of money being being pumped into it. Um, so we need to get our, our act together uh, and be speaking to each other to to coordinate um, a response. We need to try and fill in the gaps where we've got absolutely very little information about what's going on in terms of deer management and try and pull those people into the equation and also try to avoid areas where we get um, deer coming into conflict with the public, you, these peri-urban sort of environments where, you know, Mrs. Smith's roses have been eaten and all the rest of it, which is a fairly minor uh, end of the spectrum to people being killed on the road with, you know, RTAs where, where the population of deer is too high. So... The consequence of not trying to do something is is, is possibly um, some political um, sticks making us do it. So we'd rather do it before we pushed and uh, and just really try and avoid as uh, much as possible a lot of the bad press that deer seems to get, which in, in many cases is, 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 is probably our fault, not their fault. Yeah, I would say... In recent years, I think there's definitely been a move in certain certain areas by certain organisations to really treat deer more as a pest than a game species. I mean, what's your take on that, Chris? Yeah, I think you're right. And, and you know, it wasn't so long ago where roe deer in this area were treated as a pest. Um, and, and, and it's probably the military influence coming back from, from Europe that recognised that deer were potentially a sporting species. And it's, it's not long ago where deer were sort of driven and, and shot with shotguns and, and all the rest of it, which is clearly not acceptable uh, for any sort of humane, um, you know, method of control. We then get sort of the influence and, as Richard already said, some very, very good, committed, the vast majority of people I come across, you know, very committed, ethical stalkers, everything they shoot is eaten. They can, you know, they're very careful about how deer are treated and handled and go into the food chain. All this work's being done, uh, and then we start to see possibly deer numbers in certain areas uh, above acceptable levels, and then we perhaps end up with a situation where we're going backwards, and, and, and you know, individuals, farmers, shall we say, perhaps through no fault of their own, having to take matters into their own hands, um, and deer really not being, being treated as a, as, a, as a really legitimate, you know, quarry species. So we need to have that effective method of control, um, by you know qualified, experienced people, so we don't end up going backwards because it will be very easy to go backwards. Richard, there's definitely a distinction to be made between the hunting that is done for, and I hate using this word really, sport if you like, or hunting for client purposes, a client being taken out in exchange of money so that he can have a hunting experience. And the, the, the culling of deer, which is part of a management plan, like Chris says, maybe there's a higher density in an area where there's been a lot of road traffic accidents and they know that numbers need to be reduced in that area or in, in upland areas, they, they have the management cull plan, so they know they need to reduce numbers for the following year, taking into account birth rates. How, how do you achieve that balance? Because obviously there, there is always going to be a little bit of a clash between sporting concern and management for tree damage, RTAs, etc., etc. Yeah, you're quite right, Byron. There's, there is this um, major divide which affects deer management wherever you find it uh, about the different management objectives. Um, for some deer managers, deer are an opportunity and sporting use is one of them. And for others, it's a threat because they're trying to do something different. And the two organisations I represent uh, are about representing all deer managers, whatever their management objectives. So we often find ourselves in the sort of mediation role, 
Uh, I mean, to take an upland situation where um, tree regeneration is the management objective, you will find that the owner and manager of that land wants a population density of two to five per square kilometre. His next door neighbour uh, is looking for 10 to 15 per square kilometre for sporting reasons, but of course they all go where the shelter is, and as the tree regeneration comes up, whatever the number of deer in the area, on a frosty night when there's nothing else to do but look for shelter and eat what's sticking above the snow, the deer go to the bit where they can do most damage. And that's where all the uh, difficulties arise between different deer managers. So the challenge for deer management groups, and I'm talking upland groups here mainly, although it applies to some extent also in the lowlands, is to sit down and negotiate with the deer, through a deer management plan, identify the different management objectives, and create an action plan that delivers outcomes that are acceptable to all concerned, uh, even if it means a bit of compromise. Compromise is an important word. Compromise and leadership are the words I would say uh, are the critical ones in terms of successful deer management groups. Chris, you, yeah. I, I know from hunting with you, um, in, in where you live, that you do a, a little bit of both. Uh, and in fact, you actually use some of your, you, the, the clients that you take out as part of uh, areas where there is a, you know, a, a definite sort of management plan, and especially with regard to, to trees and, and preventing damage on trees. So h- how do you make that balance? Yeah, it's really, it, it, it's a balancing act. Um, I, the ground that I control, there's a lot of influences and a lot of different factors that influence, influence the, how I manage the deer on the ground to an area that's you know, recently been planted as part of a grant scheme where it's not zero tolerance, but it's very, very low deer densities because those trees need to get away to other areas, perhaps farmland, um, agricultural land, where effectively I'm allowed to... Um, really look after the deer in terms of, 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 of sort of sporting purposes. So they're kind of two ends of the spectrum, really. Whilst deer management still needs to go on in both, and if you're actually producing good quality, let's just use raw, for example, then your deer management is pretty good because you'll not produce many decent raw books. If your deer management is poor, too many females, you know, too many books, and you're going to produce good animals. So it's really quite difficult, but it does... It does because of the way that I'm operating with my training inspection, we do a lot of DSC 1, DSC 2 work, and people coming on an introduction to stalking course, at the end of the day, they're not really interested whether I'm taking them out on a piece of ground that's with, with effectively crop protection, or whether I'm taking them out on a piece of ground which is an arable piece of ground where I've got a lot more flexibility on, on you know, I, I can effectively manage the deer in, in cooperation with a landowner. So in terms of taking people out, it's relatively easy. Um, for me, um, they're not really bothered where they are, but what it does allow me to do, and bear in mind I'm doing a lot of training, is explain to folk at the, at the grassroots and ground level just exactly the complexities of, of deer management, in inverted commas, by showing them the damage situation, the crop protection situation, and then again perhaps also taking them out on another occasion on, a, on an estate where we've got a little bit of flexibility on, on how we allow the deer to, to develop. Ultimately, you almost achieve the same thing because if your deer densities are quite right on agricultural estate for sporting purposes, then you 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 are actually not probably far off um, having a good um, crop protection policy as well. If you if you sort of if you can sort of see where I'm coming from, um, a big stand book with in terms of roe deer, you know, a big dominant male book will keep the youngsters in check and kick them out. Um, so he'll do quite a good job on his own. Um, 
but it's not a, it's not easy. It's a balancing act. I think Richard mentioned the key word compromise. It's a compromise a lot of the time with what the forest manager want, what the owner, what the owner want, and kind of what I want. What I want is right down the bottom end of the spectrum. You know, we have a job to do. Um, so yet again, this is this is it kind of really shows you the challenges that the, the lowland deer group deer groups are perhaps the wrong wrong term, but the you know the lowland teams, if you like, that's the challenge that they face. Just to uh, pick you up on something that you, you were talking about there, which we actually touched on, I think, in the very first podcast that we, we did, is the idea of um, management for trophy hunting. Now, you just explained that there's a, for you, certainly there, there's a crossover there because by managing it for the, the greatest purposes of uh, achievable and acceptable densities on farmland for crop damage, for tree damage, you are in turn... Um, culling animals in a way that achieves that at the same time as you are producing, you know, really good heads. Can you just explain uh, to somebody from the outside why management for big trophy heads, which there are obviously people who want to shoot big trophy heads, isn't just purely for producing that animal and the trophy on the wall and why that actually has a, a greater benefit to the species. Yeah, it does. It, it is a misconception. I have this conversation an awful lot. Uh, and, and to, basically, the, most folk that are not involved in deer, and even a lot of stalkers actually, think that by leaving lots and lots of females on the ground, it doesn't matter what species, that will produce lots and lots of males, and that will produce lots and lots of deer with big things on the top of the head. Um, and you couldn't be further from the truth because the opposite will actually happen. If you have too high a density of males, there's too much competition, etc., 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 and you will not produce quality animals. Now, if you are producing quality animals, then your deer density um, is got to, has got to be good. Um, notwithstanding the odd animal wandering in off somebody else's ground, perhaps where the density is good, but if we're looking at a large area, to produce quality animals on your ground, you have a good density commensurate with that particular species. You've got a good relationship and a good ratio between females and males. So if we were managing an estate purely for sporting purposes, we would control the females very, very carefully. Uh, we don't want too many. And we would hit very hard the young males um, from that year's retention. Those are the ones that will do most damage. Those are the ones that are least likely to survive a hard winter if there's too much pressure on them. So by an effective sort of management process um, on an estate, and if that estate is producing quality animals, it doesn't matter what species you're talking about here, Chinese walleye, deer, fallow, you know, red anything, if your density is right and you're producing quality animals, then you're actually managing your deer um, very well. Not necessarily in a, crop, a total crop protection scenario, but you know, you're going a long way um, towards crop protection as well because your deer density has to be right and the deer can you know, then survive um, particularly well in, the, in the, those sort of conditions. Could I come in there? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what Chris was saying earlier uh, takes me back to something I heard um, a good number of years ago, but it's always in the back of my mind when it comes to deer management. Uh, the late Dick Balhari died earlier this year, 
Um, used to attend our dear management group meetings in the 19, early 1980s, uh, and he was at that time a senior staff member of the Nature Conservancy Council of Scotland, which has later become SNH. And at that time, just to remind you, the deal legislation didn't make any provision to protect the natural heritage. It was all about economic damage to farmland and forestry. And I remember him coming up to me after the end of a group meeting, and he said, you lads need to stop looking at antlers and stop looking at the beast that's carrying them. And then you need to look at what it's living off, because if it's not living off a healthy environment, it won't be a big animal, it won't grow good horns, and it won't produce anything. So it's all about going right back to the basics. And uh, that, I think, is exactly what Chris was saying. It takes you right back to a sustainable number of deer uh, on any piece of ground. And that takes into account the other animals that are living off that environment. We're very often told there are too many deer in Scotland. And I disagree with that, because it's a silly statement. It means... You know, too many for what, too many for who. Um, and what are the other things that are going on? Red deer share their range with sheep, far more sheep than red deer. But nobody ever talks about there being too many sheep in Scotland. Actually, the numbers of both have fallen remarkably in the last 10 years. And I would say that um, we're in the process of, of a resurging habitat, in a resurgent habitat in, in the highlands. In the lowlands, uh, my observation, without having the numbers because nobody has them, is that roe deer numbers are uh, exploding. It's perhaps too strong a word, but increasing rapidly. And that's not surprising because with our new focus on the environment, which I'm not at all critical of, I, I welcome it, um, there is a great deal of environmental improvement going across through the SRDP schemes and farming context, uh, and then through government environmental schemes like the Central Scotland Green Network. So what we're doing is creating perfect habitat for roe deer. So, of course, they're responding to that. They're uh, very... Um, uh, responsive um, uh, and adaptable species. So we need to be ahead of that curve. Um, we need to be managing our rodeo populations pretty rigorously at the moment, otherwise they start to become a menace instead of an asset. Um, and that's when new trees get damaged. And uh, I, I often find myself having to be an apologist in a funny kind of way for forestry interests, because the people who are primarily focused on sporting deer management can't understand or forgive foresters for shooting large numbers of deer. Uh, fairly indiscriminately, without much selection. But the fact is that we pay the Forest Commission to grow trees for us. That's their management objective. And we have to accept that they want a much lower density of deer, particularly in the early um, years of a young plantation. And all we can expect them to do is to try and modify the way in which they manage deer to take account of their neighbouring interests. If you respect your neighbours, not much else can go wrong. I mean, should we be... Or should the public uh, be looking at deer in the same way as we see farming? Because essentially, we have we, you know we have a stocking level over a certain amount of ground, which is harvestable, and it's it's harvestable over the long term if it's done right, and it's it's a great food source. In fact, that that'll go on to a question I'm going to ask a little bit uh, later on. But how do you go about explaining to the public the importance of of keeping deer because I know that there we, we've kind of touched on it a little bit about them maybe being seen as a pest and there's certain communities in certain parts of Scotland who would quite honestly be happy if the deer were wiped out so how do you how do you tackle that uh, I mean you're absolutely right to draw the parallels with farming and it's not a distinction that is really a very big one because it's all about how much protein and timber what we can produce off the limited resource that's available to us in Scotland with all the people that are on it including public recreation and everything else um, and if, you, if you're a farmer, you know exactly how many sheep to put in a field when the grass is a certain length. We should be applying the same principles and skills to the number of, of uh, animals that we're grazing on more natural habitats. 
Um, and that's what deer management planning uh, is all about. And, um, and we're getting better at it. But uh, wildlife management of all sorts is, is a reactive um, science, if we can call it that. Um, and so one responds to different changes, changes in the habitat, changes in uh, grazing competition, uh, changes in climate, all of those things. Um, we just need to be very aware of the changes so that we adapt quickly enough to prevent problems developing. One of the big problem areas at the moment, of course, is that with the increase in, in road deer numbers, that we're having far more problem with road traffic accidents involving deer. And, you know, the public interest is the big thing that we hear about these days in terms of deer. The biggest impact on the public interest is when somebody runs their car into a deer and damages the car, wounds or kills the deer, and possibly puts themselves in hospital. I mean, that's just... That's not a successful outcome for deer management. I suppose, ultimately, there is, though, a limit to how much you can do to prevent that. Obviously, higher densities in areas, densities beyond which might be acceptable for the various management plans, will increase the likelihood of that happening. But you're never going to eliminate that unless you put big fences up every single road in the countryside. Yeah, you can mitigate the risks, and fences are an absolute way to mitigate the risk. You, you, have a, you put a fence between areas where you want no deer and an area where you want some deer. So that's, but a lot of people don't like the idea of fencing, and who would, because it's damned expensive. Um, but sometimes it's the, it's the best method of keeping deer, for example, off major roads. Uh, in other cases, there are other things that can be done quite apart from managing the deer population. One is to get the highways authority to understand that the grass seed mixes they put along new roads are very often attract the deer onto them, and then they fertilise them and lime them, and don't understand why that's the only place the deer want to be, and standing in the middle of the road at night waiting to get in the way of a passing vehicle. So we, we haven't joined all the dots yet, but we're learning about it and making progress. Another thing um, that they do, of course, is salt the roads, and the deer like to come to the roads and lick the salt, so... There you are again. Uh, muddled thinking. We don't, we, and that's what, if I may say so, I know I'm banging on a bit now, Warren, but that's what the two organisations I represent are about. It's about, uh, about joining up the dots, collaboration with all the interests so that they understand and work together instead of pulling in the opposite direction. Yeah, I mean, that it obviously makes perfect sense that. Chris, if I can just uh, bring you along the same sort of thread, but focus now on deer as a food source. Now, I know, uh, knowing you, that a lot of the, the deer that you shoot either with, with clients or you're shooting yourself as part of the management plans that you have get processed and go into the food chain. Now, I, I'm sure you both probably caught the, the news story this week. Um, I think it was out of one of the Dundee game dealers where there was a number of people who became ill through, I think it was an E. coli outbreak of some description, uh, from eating venison products. I mean, Chris, what is your... Can, well, first of all, can you, can you maybe explain to people um, how careful you are with taking this wild animal, be a roe deer, red deer, from the hill to the point where it's hanging up in the larder to prevent any kind of uh, contamination uh, and the, the effects of various viruses contaminating tar uh, carcasses? Yeah, we... we <laughs> You know me incredibly careful. Um, it's one of the most important. I mean, I'm all about sustainability anyway. You know that. We grow a lot of our own vegetables, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a real big thing to me. I mean, the, actually pulling the trigger on a deer for me, although I don't do that very often these days, but I do enjoy taking people out that have never done it before. Um, that's, a, that's a minor point of the whole stalking experience. To me, apart from the, the actual getting into the quarry, when we've actually achieved success and we've got a deer, dead and my ultimate objection there is for that animal not to know anything about it 
if I want to go early, uh, I want to go in the back of the head that I don't know is coming after having one of my favourite meals, um, which to my mind is a way they should die. Thereafter, I'm absolutely meticulous about the way that that deer um, is treated and should be treated. And that's, again, one of the big, um, uh, my big sort of passion when I've got people with me is to try and instill that in them. You know, the deer is, 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 is dealt with quickly um, and expertly to bleed it, to cool the animal down. It's then gralloped and eviscerated, so basically we, we clean all the insides out. Ideally, that's done in a suspended fashion, so that it's, once it's been picked up off the floor, um, as you know yourself, we've filmed it many times, the deer's hung into a tree, particularly with a row, slightly more difficult with a red. Um, it's totally eviscerated, then it goes into a, a clean um, carrying uh, 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 row sack, which has got a disposable liner in there, back into the larder, hung up in the larder, cleaned down and straight into a chilled environment. Um, the deer never having touched the, the floor from, from effectively being shot. Um, the larder's immaculate, meets all sort of food safety regulations, so I'm very, very particular about that. And if you eat, you know, we're going to we some of that deer I'm going to eat, so obviously I've got a vested interest in making sure that it's it's handled correctly, but an awful lot of it goes into the food chain via one of, one of you know, two or three different sources. Um, it's all accountable, it's all traceable, it's all documented. So, for example, um, again, dealer I deal with collected some red deer from me um, yesterday. Um, I can, should there be any sort of problem with that deer, I can tell the sort of Food Standards Authority, the environmental folk, exactly where it was shot, when it was shot, whether there was any problems with it. We do a full examination of, of the carcass and the offal to veterinary standard, and we're qualified to do that as DSC Level 2. It's, hand, it's in an approved larder. There's full records kept. So the traceability of food is, I think, is, is kind of second to none. And this is um, really... The, the big thing that I think we need to be to be banging on about because a lot of folk don't realise you know how a deer is treated after it's been shot until you actually sit down and talk to them um, and also we've got a, a good opportunity to do that at the moment because I don't think you can there's a, there's a real emphasis on on food programmes on the television these days venison features very highly on that almost without exception these days on any programme that you watch so there's a lot of public interest in eating deer. Um, and I think on the back of that, if we can get the message across just 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 how that thing gets to the table, um, then I think you know we're well on the way to raising the sort of public opinion, if you like, about about stalking. Yeah, Richard. I mean, the one thing that I always notice when I walk into a supermarket is the limited number of game of any description. I mean, you you do tend to find venison there, but it's not in any great quantity. What can we do to address that? Because I mean, my personal view is if we if we could address that more, so it has it becomes more acceptable as a meal on the plate for your average family, then it's good all round because it helps raise the profile of deer as a as a species that has a, a greater benefit beyond your sort of stalking purposes, and. By virtue of that, that eventually you know feeds back and provides more money to manage these areas. Uh, <coughs> yeah, good point. I mean, we, you have to remember, Byron, we're in a, we're in a micro industry in meat production terms. Um, the annual cull of deer from Scotland is around a hundred thousand. Um, 
the tonnage, I think that converts into tonnage terms of three to 4,000 tonnes per annum, and it's falling because the red deer population and the red deer colour coming down. Yet demand has never been stronger because of the good work of the Scottish Venison Partnership, which rep represents all our organisations and has introduced a very effective quality assurance scheme, to go back to what Chris was saying. But we still import from other sources, mostly New Zealand, farmed venison um, out of season, and we import about 1,000 tonnes of venison a year. We export about 1,000 tonnes of venison a year, and that's mostly the stag cull, for which there isn't much taste in the English-British palate, but there is quite a lot of taste in some European nations. Um, but we've got a major shortfall, and the industry is trying to develop, is trying to provide the basis for the uh, regeneration of the deer farming industry to close that gap so that we're, we've got complementary production of wild and farmed venison. Because, as you rightly say, the demand is there. It's being promoted all the time on television and in the other media. It's a very success, it's a great success story. The recent blip that you referred to, and I hope it's no more than that, I expect it's no more than that, is unfortunate because it doesn't take much for people's perception to change. But um, I know the game dealer concerned and it, uh, the premises, which I've been in several times, is second to none in terms of hygiene standards. Uh, I know that it's been gone over with the finest of tooth combs by the you know, Food Standards Scotland since the incident took place and that they find no evidence of any sort linking anything produced from there uh, in, in terms of the bug count with what happened. Having said that, um, you know, obviously venison did come from there. That is, is common to at least some of those those recent cases. But it was a small number. Uh, they were all um, shelf life dated, and which have passed. And uh, you know, I think we can hopefully write that down to experience. So you don't think that there there is more demand than we can actually produce in yeah, this country? Yeah, there is more demand than we can produce. And are, are people sourcing this maybe from local sources then? Because it's not like there's vast numbers in the big supermarkets. It's strange. As I said, the overall quantities are very small in terms of beef and lamb and chicken and that sort of thing. But um, so there, even if you had it all in one supermarket, you still wouldn't fill, fill very many shelves. So there just isn't much of it. It's also perceived as a niche product, which is not a bad thing because it supports a price that provides a reasonable return to producers, albeit not many of them make it much money. And the processors also need to make a living, otherwise the industry doesn't function properly. But um, venison industry is quite strange because it's partly cottage industry. You know, there is a trade for local butchers, local hotels, and the game meat regulation allows for that, small quantities produced locally. And then there's the mainstream bit, which goes to the big dealers uh, and is then sold to the multiple retailers. So you've kind of got those two tracks. If you know where to look and, and you're butcher is reasonably educated and the venison partnership has been running courses for butchers over the last few years then you can certainly get venison so just as a, a final point on, on this topic could, is it the case then that we should as well as looking along the, the farming route of deer which is massive in new zealand should we be doing more with our wild you know our, the, the wild stock that we have is, is it the case that in certain areas we actually need to increase the densities to be able to provide this demand it seems madness if we could do that if that is possible why we should import meat from the other side of the world uh, i don't think that's ever going to change but you are quite right and particularly where sheep have come off or cattle have come off a hill farm there must be opportunities for adjacent deer populations having access to that ground to be enclosed and farmed rather than managed as a wild species. And I do think there are some opportunities there. But broadly speaking, I don't think there's, because of the relative poverty of the land, I don't think there's much potential for increasing deer density to increase venison production. But you do make a perfectly fair point, is that the 
media and political pres presumption is that there are always too many deer and there need to be less. Actually, there are, there are a lot of areas that I'm familiar with where the deer numbers have come down so much that there's a very strong case actually of having more deer because grazing is a part of managing the habitat. It's a vital management tool and they are part of our biodiversity. Just going to change the subject. I think we've pretty, pretty well covered that. I think there's been some really interesting points come out of that, uh, some of which I actually wasn't 100% aware of, so that's been great. Uh, Richard, right at the start, you mentioned uh, land reform and basically saying that it will affect or could affect the way that uh, management of deer, especially in upland areas, goes about. Chris, to bring you in on this, I mean, what's your take on the potential effects of land reform on that? Well, I think that it happens to a degree already, if you like, with with um, estates that, you know, through death duties and things, and you found that estates have actually been broken up. Um, and therefore, we get back to this problem of, of, of um, coordinated deer management. Land reform is going to probably... The net, the net result is going to be exactly the same thing. You're going to actually end up splitting um, estates up, whether it be lowland or, 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 or highland, into smaller pockets and parcels. Um, and then it's going to be incredibly difficult to coordinate your deer management. So you are immediately going to create um, a problem, the problem that we're actually trying to address and do something about now. Um, and this is probably one of the large differences between deer species apart. Um, upland deer management, um, in some respects, is easier because you might have you know, several estates which will cover three, four hundred thousand acres. If I look at you know twenty thousand acres down in this part of, of the country, we're probably looking at as many as a thousand or a thousand plus different landowners. So I think land reform could easily end up just fragmenting um, fragmenting the ownership of land by definition and therefore creating a problem with um, from a deer perspective, coordinated deer management. Richard, do you th is the potential for, for land reform going to undo a lot of the, the good work that you know, we've spent the last half an hour talking about? Well, uh, Chris is absolutely right in saying that further fragmentation, and the lowlands are, are a good example of what could happen if, if the much less productive big holdings in the highlands were broken up. Um, it, it, it makes it, the coordinated management much more difficult, perhaps particularly when you also get a much broader range of objectives. Um, and if you look at Ireland, where um, land reform took place 100 years ago, you know, the average holding size throughout Ireland is under 100 acres. And, and there isn't much room for nature because all the lands are farmed and, and, it, and are worked very hard. Um, the, the land reform bill, as we're looking at it at the moment, has got two measures in it which particularly relate to deer. One is about giving SNH a bit more power to intervene when things aren't going right. And I, think, I don't think I've got a problem with that because we are, our organisations are here to support the people who are trying hard, not the people who aren't. And if there are people who are holding others back, then... Uh, let the SNH do its worst. It's never had to do it because it's quite careful at persuading people, but if more powers are needed to achieve that, I don't have a problem. The other thing, perhaps more importantly, is the uh, uh, a very political intention to reintroduce sporting rights for shooting and stalking. Um, and uh, it's strange that the government have chosen to do this, although they're leaving the 
relief from rates in place, exemption from rates in place for farming and forestry, which are also primary industries uh, using natural resources. The effect of that will be potentially as a, to act as a disincentive to investment in deer management. So people who are employing deer stalkers and have to also pay rates, the first thing probably that will go is to reduce the operation, so you have to pay less rates, uh, less wages. It's, it works entirely against, it could potentially work entirely against the government's objective of more people in the countryside and a more sustainable rural economy. So I think that needs a bit more work. Um, it could turn into a positive if, and this is certainly what I've been seeing in, in our written and verbal evidence, it, it could turn into a positive if they do insist on reintroducing sporting rates, which I suspect is going to happen. Uh, if um, the uh, estates that are, uh, participate, or the landholdings that participate in deer management groups or lowland deer groups are relieved of rates because they, are, they have approved management plans and are conducting themselves in a way that meets the public standard. So uh, I do understand, uh, and I don't, I'm not going to express any personal prejudices against the intention of the legislation to make more land and more access available to more people, but it does need to make business sense, it does need to hang together, and it does need to be realistic. And there is some unrealistic thinking in some of this um, land reform stream at the moment. I mean, certainly from, from my perspective, and I, I don't know as much about it as you do, the idea of, of incentivizing good practice, like you've just suggested, uh, suggested, seems like perfect sense to me. And it, I think that would, just, that would benefit the local communities as well as the estates. And just as a, a final note on, on the land reform, because I'm sure we're going to pick up uh, this in future podcasts as time goes on. Chris, you, this is very much your, your day-to-day business. I mean, it's, it's not easy making a living out of w- what you do. If you're suddenly hit by a lot of extra rates and taxes, I mean, how's, I know you can't work out the numbers right now off the top of your head, but how's that going to affect your business and maybe try and project that onto some local estates that, that you know in terms of the business that they, they operate on a day-to-day basis? Well, potentially, devastating, really. Um, it's got a knock-on effect to everybody in the recreational stock. You know, the, the, there's going to be an increase in, in the, the sort of leases that they're paying. And just, it's just yet another uh, another pressure, I think, that, you know, that, that, that everyone can do without. Um, I can't really see anything really positive to say about the potential land reform, although I am not an expert on it and I haven't read into it in any great depth anywhere near sort of to Richard's level. But but just from, from my perspective, um, and I don't really don't know the figures involved, but you start putting, um, you know, a, a considerable percentage increase in costs, then obviously, you know, you've got to recover that. So that means you putting your rates up and then there's a knock-on effect, a downturn, or, you know, in, in business coming in. That's got a knock-on effect in, in, within the local community. So I think the whole thing hasn't really, to my mind, been thought through. And, and it seems to be, it seems to be absolutely crazy. Uh, and I really don't have anything particularly good to say about it at all. Well, I think we know your, your, your feelings on that then. Uh, well, I think we'll, we'll draw a close on that. I've got two more topics that I, I want to discuss before just briefly going over a couple of questions that have come in for, from listeners. Now, the, the next uh, topic, which is um, completely off topic, if you like, from what we've been talking about, um, is the idea of when is hunting not hunting? And I'm referring uh, specifically to this, and I'm actually going to come to you first, Chris, on this, is 
if you look at um, a lot of YouTube videos from uh, the Americans are particularly guilty of this, if I can say that, of shooting animals and game at very long ranges, four, five thousand meters, even a mile. And, you know, they make videos of that. Everyone's very happy that they've, they've done it. There's high fives and slapping on the back. Now, the question is, is that hunting? And where do you draw the line between shooting and hunting? And is what goes on, you know, ethical? Uh, what range is not ethical? Uh, maybe you can shed some light on that, Chris, and your thoughts. Yeah, well, I, I, clearly, I mean, I, I don't think it is hunting. Um, and I spend an awful lot of time training people. I spend a lot of, lot of time on the range and seeing how people perform. Um, to my mind, hunting is, is getting back to basics and field craft. At the end of the day, this is why we all, well, certainly my, from my perspective, this is why we all actually enjoy doing what we're doing. It's one-on-one -on -one, uh, against a wild animal, a wild quarry, in the wild quarry's own environment. The odds are all with the, with the quarry. Uh, and unless you are in tune to your surroundings, unless you're knowledgeable about your, your quarry species, um, use the sort of elements correctly, etc., then you're not actually going to be putting food on the table very often. Um, so you would very quickly have to learn if you were relying on that as a food source. So to me, um, th that's the whole thing about hunting. When we talk about distances, um, Again, that's a lot of that's down to the individual. One reason why any time I'll prove a client out with me, the first thing we do before we set out and sort of chase after anything is we go onto the range and we check the client's ability, we check his equipment, his rifle to make sure he's having duty straight. While we're doing that, we're assessing if you like individual marksmanship because that will then tell me just how close I need to get that individual into a deer before I'm going to allow him to to shoot you know, shoot the animal. Um, so that's the first thing we're looking at. If you look at, historically, the average range of a deer shot in a woodland environment, it's somewhere in the region of 65 to 70 yards, which would be very close. And with modern sporting rifles, a very inexperienced shot can put a very, very good group together at sort of 75 yards. Now, that's hunting. To get into 75, 70 metres from a, a wild quarry species in its own environment, is actually good field craft. On the open hill, commonly distances will be extended because there's no trees um, and therefore cover is very sparse. You often call up ditches and drains. So I, you know, I would say there the average uh, range of shots on the hill is possibly approaching 140, 150. I don't think many people um, in the environments we're stalking would shoot a deer at much more than probably 150, 160. Uh, sort of yards um, they may well be capable of doing that but the further you start to push out then the more the bigger the margin of error comes in and we're actually all about as i said earlier on a humane kill we want the, the shot placement to be absolutely perfect um, in order to do that then we want to be operating at the optimum ranges of which we are comfortable uh, and, and avoiding as much as possible any margin of error I don't. Um, I would not allow a deer to be shot uh, in in this sort of road deer we're talking now in the environments that we stalk, really beyond 150, 160 yards. Um, now that's proper hunting. We, we we lost you for a couple of seconds when you were talking there, but I don't think we lost too much of what you were saying. And I, I can certainly echo what what you were saying. I mean, Richard, if I bring you in on that, what, what's your kind of view on it? Well, I'd like to comment on a slightly different aspect that um, Chris referred to um, earlier, and you know, what is hunting, what is not. 
Um, people tend to think that if somebody's paying for it, it's hunting. If it's um, not being paid for, it's a management. Well, my take on that is that it's management regardless. Uh, the fact that somebody's prepared to pay for it and uh, do it probably either on the basis of their own developed skills or accompanied by somebody who's got those skills themselves and can make the judgments that, that mean that the best practice is achieved in terms of welfare and all those sorts of things. It's all management. And the fact you can generate an income helps to pay for the management. So I really think it's a false distinction. But going back to the rates point, uh, if we go back to when sporting rates were payable before up to the mid-1990s, the assessors always looked very hard at whether you were whether the deal were being controlled by somebody who was employed to control them, or whether they were being uh, whether they they were being culled by a guest or paying guest or whatever. And as I say, it's a false distinction. It's all management, and it's all important, uh, and it all needs to be under the supervision or done by somebody who does it to the highest standards and knows what they're capable of, can assess the conditions. Uh, and uh, take a safe shot that has the desired effect. Yeah, no, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with, with everything that's been said there. Uh, I think that there is a dangerous culture growing of people. It's almost become a bit of a competition, and you see this particularly online in, in social uh, networking forums where it's, it's become a competition of, you know, I've shot something further than you, and I find it utterly ridiculous. And some of the things that I see people write down and show pictures of, I find quite honestly disgusting. One, that they're doing it in the first place, and two, that they feel the need to show the rest of the world how big they are by having, having done it. You know, 400-meter neck shots. The shot placement is a, a whole other discussion which I'll deal with in another podcast, but I think it is a, a very dangerous trend and i'm sure you've seen this chris uh, i know that you you've got a, a presence with your your own business on on facebook and you probably see in the various groups uh, people very keen to tell um, other and i'm now using the, the the term hunters loosely because I, I don't really class that as hunting but other hunters just what they've achieved and, and most of it has to do with distance and i think that that's a spillover from from the american culture but i, I don't think it's something that we should be in, encouraging just, no. one, just one final point, um, Byron, if I could make it, is that we're very often told in Scotland by the people who are critical of the way that deer are managed under the voluntary principle that other countries do it better. And you know, there's reference to the German system, which is much more prescriptive. But let's not forget that um, within that culture, you have a lot of people who shoot moving game. Um, and you also have the people who specialize in using crossbows. Let's not men mention Cecil the Lion. You know, so all of, that is, all of that is about the... Uh, gratification of the individual it's not about the clean cull of an animal that needs to be removed and th so I'm agreeing with you but let's not just think that because we do it in a certain way it's either better or worse than other people's systems yeah and so Chris were you gonna were you gonna add something to that yeah the only thing I was gonna say is that look, you know we're, we're actually trying to promote one of the things we're talking about now is effective and sensible deer management and we're trying to sort of raise the profile of stalking we're trying to support and and and, and, uh, and Talking, you only need a few idiots like this, and that sort of thing gets into the media. And the perception immediately, people will always pick on the bad side of anything. They'll not pick up on the good side of anything. Um, and if you push, if this comes to the, and I, there is definitely an increase in trend in this sort of long-range shooting uh, rubbish, which I, you know, very strongly object to. But the danger, like everything else, 
um, bad, bad publicity um, really is not helpful at all. And we go back to banging on about education, trying to sort of educate people what it's all about, the humane killer aspect. So we've just got to keep, we've just got to keep sort of pushing along that road and hopefully and people will realise that in any set of situations you're going to have a few idiots that um, unfortunately will try not to because the tar is all with the same brush. Yeah, no, in fact that is exactly what I was going to say to conclude that was that although I, I've maybe made it out like there's loads of people doing this, it, that's probably not, that's not fair. There is a small number of people who shout very loudly and we see this in a lot of walks of life and that's, unfortunately, that is what we see in, like you've just said, that is the kind of stuff that gets picked up by the media and from my point of view, you know, we should be doing whatever we can do firstly to, to kill the animal as, as cleanly and efficiently as possible. And that ultimately means getting as close as you can without spooking it, because the closer you are, the more chance you have of reducing that risk of something going wrong. No one's perfect. Things are never going to go 100% right 100% of the time, but we have to do everything that we can do to help get as close to that as we can. And you you will be have a have a much greater chance of that if you can be as close as possible, not shooting something at a thousand yards. My my last uh, last topic before the the few brief questions from the listeners is, and I'm not expecting to go into this in great detail because we are definitely going to cover this in a lot of uh, a lot of detail later on. Is the question of lead and non-lead ammunition, but specifically for for deer stalking. Um, Chris, have you yourself had any experience using some of the non-lead alternatives that are about now? No, if I'm honest, I haven't. I mean, I've read a fair bit on it. Um, stuff written by yourself a lot of the time. Um, so I've, I've actually got no experience of using um, non-lead ammunition. Um, I'm, not a great, I'm not a great advocate of it. Um, I, I personally don't see the need. I deal with hundreds of carcasses, you know, which sort of train and teach people butchery. Um, any, it's always quality uh, of the, the meat that's of paramount importance, which we've mentioned a number of times already. Any bullet damage within a deer um, is immediately obvious when you skin the deer off. That is all cut out and removed, and any venison that goes into the food chain thereafter is completely clean. It is absolutely crystal clear and obvious when you look at a carcass where the damage is, and therefore, if there's any sort of fragmentation of bullet, etc., uh, within that carcass, it is cut away and disposed of. So, for my, for me, and I eat a lot of deer, and I guess eat a lot of deer because we run a, a bed and breakfast, as you know, um, I'm absolutely 100% certain that there is nothing getting in there that shouldn't be in there because it's all removed. Um, I'm afraid it's going to come. It's definitely going to come. It's going to come in, uh, and it's something that we're going to have to um, have to get to used to but uh, as of yet uh, which is probably something i need to start looking at fairly quickly um, from the business point of view and sort of playing around and practicing with some of the um, the alternatives to to lead um as you probably appreciate i'm not a great i don't really see the need why we we should be doing it if i'm honest but there we go i think it's going to come um it's going to come fairly soon Richard, do we do we need? Is there a need to move away from from lead ammunition? Is there actually the perception is that there's a problem with it? I mean, that's when you read the little snippets in the papers and uh, you know online, the perception is that we're moving away from it because there is a problem with it. And I, I noted um, actually in the the blurb from a, a German manufacturer who who is now making uh, non lead ammunition. 
They described their non-lead ammunition as food safe, and I'm quoting now. What the food safe was the phrase that they they used. Does to me that basically says that anything that has lead in it is now not food safe. Well, I don't have the technical knowledge that you do or that uh, Chris does. Um, so, but as a jack of all trades, master of none, um, there is widespread concern, rightly or wrongly, about lead in the environment. And that includes the use of lead ammunition, both um, shotgun and, um, and rifle bullets. Um, the uh, dangers can be mitigated by careful handling, such as Chris has just described. Um, I think uh, he's right. It is going to come. Uh, I know that Forest Enterprise have been using non-lead bullets for some considerable time. And what they tell me is that they perform every bit as well as the lead ammunition they used before that the costs are coming together, so to speak, so that the cost penalty for using non-lead is gradually vanishing. And, you know, once that happens and large, larger quantities are sold and the prices are at a parity point, then I, I guess it'll become, you know, 10 years from now, we'll probably all be using non-lead ammunition. But, but you know, the first concern is that it, it is uh, comparative in every way, including uh, financially, because uh, bullets are a big cost. Yeah, no, it's an it's an interesting question, which I think could run and run. My my biggest concern over it is that is the push are the the lobbying groups that are pushing governments around the world to go away from lead ammunition. Are is the incentive actually anything to do with lead, and is it more to do with making the more restrictions towards hunting? I think there are some people who would agree with that, and some people who, who certainly wouldn't, but. Um, I think we'll, we'll pick that up at, a, at another time. So we're pretty much getting to the end now. Uh, we were fortunate enough to have a couple of people come in with uh, questions for, for both of you. Um, so we've selected um, one or two of them. We've got uh, a question here from Mark uh, Horsfall, uh, which I think really is directed towards, towards Chris. And he's asking, Chris, uh, the, DA, uh, the DMQ qualifications are level one and level two. Are they good for industry, and should it be made a legal requirement? Now, I think he's referring to should it be made a legal requirement that you have both of these for you to go and hunt deer? Um, I'm never a great fan of um, legislation saying, you know, you must have, unless that can be justified. I mean, I'm a great advocate of the, of the DMQ system. I mean, we can all not courses and training and qualifications, but at the end of the day, we've got a pretty good one in this country, um, so much so that I do have a lot of people coming from abroad to, to actually take our qualification, which I think is a is a big sort of plus and, and, and feather in DMQ's cap. Um, in essence, we're almost there already because I do a lot of referrals for people who are getting into the sport, and one of the things most police forces will require now before they issue a, a, a illegal rifle is, is DMQ-1. Uh, not exclusive, but almost in all cases they'll require it for an initial grant, and that's probably not a bad thing. Um, DMC, DMQ-2 is required a lot more now, particularly for people wanting to take leases on. Uh, Forestry Commission, for example, if you're going to store Forestry Commission land, then you have to have, have, have DMQ2 minimum before you actually get on there. So it's actually coming in through the back door. Um, unless you're fortunate enough to have shooting on private land, and there's increasingly less of that available, where uh, that would perhaps be the only land these days that you would not require a DSC level one to actually to start the ground. Most of it's sort of commercially owned or commercially managed, in which case DMQ1 is going to be the very minimum. 
So if you accept what I've said about the police with the requirements for an FAC and also the, the lease requirements to actually take a bit of ground to stalk yourself, then we are almost at a point where those qualifications are required. If I'm honest, um, I think that's probably enough. Um, I don't really see the need for someone to, in government to, to, to pass a law that says, you know, you cannot, thou shalt not stoke a deer unless you have got DSC level one. Um, there are occasions, I think, when people can actually put a case for, for, for having the need to have a deer legal rifle to protect a crop, for example, a farmer, um, and to send, ask him to go and do a DSC level one before he can shoot deer on his own land, I think starts to it starts to sort of rank a little bit with a lot of folk. So I think probably what's evolving at the moment is probably okay, because I would suggest to you that a vast majority of people are, for the reasons I've mentioned, getting qualified to level one and level two. I mean, Richard, do you have anything to add to that? Um, I think DSC level one is it's very basic, but it does mean that somebody who wants to, is, is inclined to want to go and shoot a deer or something else with a big rifle, um, has is enough interest to find out about it and learn a bit about it, even if there isn't much of a practical aspect to it. And I know that the professionals think that it's such a low level, such a low threshold, that it's not really enough. Nonetheless, in Scotland, we have decided in the sector that um, for the purposes of, of uh, defining competence, in inverted commas, that DSC level one is the minimum standard for that. And certainly if you want to be on the SNH, re SNH register of competence so that you can be uh, you can qualify to get an authorization, for example, for out-of-season or night shooting, then they expect you to be qualified to DSC Level 2. I think uh, people's interest, in, as I said earlier, I'm really impressed, particularly in the lowlands, with, the, with how seriously people take their qualifications. You know, it's all to be encouraged that people want to get better at what they do and continues to take an interest. I'm completely with Chris, is that you don't want to be too prescriptive about this because people such as myself who got lazy after level one and never took level two. I mean, the reason I like to go stalking is to go with somebody who knows what they're doing and has uh, a, a proper countryman, knows the, the, the land that they're on. It's the conversation and the chat as much as anything uh, that uh, makes me enjoy that um, as a you know, supreme way to spend a day. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point, actually. I hadn't actually thought of it before, but it could be the case that you have somebody who goes out two or three times a year, they always go with a stalker, but they might be prevented from owning a rifle and zeroing it if it was a requirement that they had to have a, a, a DMQ qualification. Meanwhile, they're never going to be on their own. So I suppose that is a, that is a distinction. Yeah, I mean, there's usually a way of doing that because there's a you know, state rifle that can be used. But, um, I mean, Chris is quite right that the police are beginning to look at this as a, as a condition for applying for a firearm certificate, but it's not a required condition. And in, I, I suspect that varies a lot from one police area to another. Uh, and you kill, stand, can still, theoretically, uh, get a, 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 a FAC for um, a big rifle without having to do any more than show that you're of good character. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you, you mentioned um, out-of-season shooting. Now, that actually goes me on to, gets me on to uh, Mark's second question. And if I go back to Chris for a moment, he's asking, um, what are your thoughts on shooting under license of deer out-of-season? Um, I think, Chris, you, you have certainly in the past been involved in uh, out-of-season licenses. Yeah, I mean, it, there isn't really such a thing as an out-of-season license. I mean, basically, um, if you're in a crop protection scenario, um, i.e. there is a definite damage being done to a crop, um, then within certain parameters, you can actually 
you know, shoot deer out of season, um, you need to be relevantly qualified and have the correct, you know, permission to be on the ground, etc. So actually, our season license is probably um, is is really not something that is issued. Uh, you shot under the relevant section of the Act. Night shooting is an entirely different thing, and clearly that's got to be licensed and authorised. But, but I mean, out-of-season shooting is, is permitted under certain circumstances. What are my views on it? My views basically are that there, there is no great issue with out-of-season shooting if there is an absolute need to do it um, and reasonable you know, alternative methods of, of, of protection of the crop have been taken. Um, so it's a, it's a last measure scenario um, where every other sort of um, alternative, if you like, has been explored. Um, I'm afraid there is a perception from my perspective that there is too much out of season shooting, you know, out of season shooting done for the for the wrong reason. Um, little things that I pick up, which yet again goes back. To what we're trying to achieve with with, with, with deer groups, with, with training and education, um, is it, really making sure people are aware that you know this is not the sort of behaviour that, that that ought to be going on. Because at the end of the day, we're back into a bad publicity scenario, the quality of venison scenario. So it's back to the same sort of theme. I mean, Richard, with your your deer management hat on, what, what is what is your view on out of season? Well, uh, if you're an occupier of land, of, with enclosed land, a farmer or a forester, you're entitled to protect your economic interest, which means you can shoot a deer or uh, empower somebody else to do so on your behalf uh, at any time of the year except for the close season of the summer uh, between 1st of April and the end of August, which is when you've got dependent calves and you need an authorisation to deal with that. Um, and, uh, you know, I think one has to accept that different people have different viewpoints when it comes to deer. But if you're in the business of producing trees, as I said earlier, uh, you can't afford to have um, uh, deer eating them out and having to start all over again. Um, I, I am just slightly concerned that uh, the legislation provides that there should be no other reasonable means when you apply for an authorization for night shooting or for uh, just an ordinary authorization. And uh, that means it should be a, uh, an activity of last resort. I think probably for economic reasons there is a danger in some cases where it's, it's not necessarily a last resort. Other reasonable means are possible, like more careful, more labour intensive admittedly, more careful deer management during the day could achieve the same ends and I think that should always be the first option uh, rather than going for an authorisation. I know that incidentally that SNH are intending to review their own procedures on this because they realise that circumstances are changing, people's attitudes to authorisations are changing and, you know, that's to be welcomed that they're going to have a proper look at it and see whether they're administering it correctly and fairly. And that brings us on to the, the very last question, which comes in from Paul Wilkie. And really, I think this is one for you, really, Chris. Um, and he's asking, um, I'll just read what, it, what he said. He said, as a professional stalker, I assume there is an option to purchase the carcass after the client has been hunting. And he wants to know what percentage of your clients take up that option and show an interest in the, the meat and harvest aspect of, uh, of the hunt. Yeah, a good question. Um, very high percentage. Um, whether, whether that is... I mean, a lot of people that come to me come to me by reputation. And I think I have a reputation as, as, as being sort of hopefully run an ethical operation where we're actually very keen on the, on the, 
that they're going into the food chain at the end of it. So maybe I get a high percentage of people that are interested in that, as opposed to perhaps somebody else that's maybe not quite that way orientated. Um, any client that comes here and shoots a deer will always have the option of purchasing the deer. I actively encourage it. They always have the option, where time permits, to, to see the ladder work as well, because a lot of them want to do that. If uh, an individual doesn't have the facilities to do that at home, then, you know, again, time permitting, I'll actually do that with them and show them and talk them through the butchery aspect and they can take the deer home. Some will, because of time constraints, leave it and collect it at a later date. In terms of, in terms of sort of percentages, um, I will probably say that well over the 50% of the clients are in one form or another wanting to take um, carcass meat part of carcass home with them. So it's it, it's actually, interestingly, a, a really high percentage. Well, I, I find that very encouraging to hear. And uh, yeah, having hunted with you before, I'd, I'd expect that, that that is the case because it's very much about everything about the day leads to that. And I know that you're, you're very good at explaining to people how important that aspect of it. Now, my brother has just handed me his piece of paper. There was one other question which I, I forgot to I forgot was in the list, and I think it's an important one, and I'll, I'll just give it to, to Richard to begin with. Uh, this comes from uh, Francisco on Facebook, and he's asking uh, that given the, the local and worldwide sympathy for anti-hunting and anti-wildlife management, uh, I guess he's probably referring in particular to Cecil the Lion and, and other stories that have come out in recent months, how do you see the, the future of gamekeeping and stalking as well, management, and do you think it would be extinct in 50 years? And his last part of this question is, depending on your answer for that, is would you encourage future generations and your children, grandchildren, to take up a job in that industry with that risk? I'm sure it's not going to disappear. It may be restructured and changed, but uh, we as humans are top of the food chain and we take, take responsibility for the management of uh, other species around us. And uh, some people may think that's a responsibility we shouldn't have, but we do. And uh, we know what happens if you stop culling any species. Uh, look at what a rabbit can do to, uh, rabbits can do to a grass field or to a growing crop of grain. If we didn't control the rabbits, we wouldn't be farming. Uh, the same applies with deer. So one way or another, we have to find a way of, of managing nature, and that means killing things. Uh, not everybody has to want to eat the meat, but it is very good, in my view, when the people who are doing carrying out that function are interested in the, in the, in the meat uh, and do it you know, with that at least as part of their motivation. So no, it's not going to go away. It may change, it may change in structure, uh, the context and rules may change, but it still has to be done, and somebody has to do it. Um, what about yourself, Chris? Do you see yeah, the, yeah, the future? Yeah, there is a future. I agree entirely with what Richard said, actually. Um, I mean, I've had my own grandchildren out. Actually, one of the parts of the question was, would you sort of encourage, um, you know, siblings to, to get involved in, uh, and offspring to get involved in the, in the deer management sector or, or hunting, whatever? If they wanted to do it and they were going about it the right way, then yeah, because I'm a great believer in, you know, people make their own way. One of the things we've talked about it a lot now. I, I, I never shy away from a discussion about about deer management with with anybody, um, and I think we it's very easy um, and, you know, to, to justify what we're doing. We run a bed and breakfast here, so we do get a lot of people that are that are non hunters, and sometimes over dinner, you know, when people it's quite obvious what we do here because there's things hanging on the wall, um, and they're often eating stuff that we've shot. It's again quite 
remarkable that the number of people that we've had here and had conversations who perhaps when they first came through the door would have been very much in the anti-shooting, sort of anti-killing Bambi category. When you sit down and explain to them just exactly what we're doing and how we go about it, we just don't go and, you know, shoot everything. The first thing that we see, and there clearly is a management uh, issue right the way across the, across the line, and man has to take control of this because there are no natural predators of deer anymore. Um, almost all of them, without exception, have, have sort of accepted the argument and really have gone away with a totally different perspective on the whole thing. And I can't think of one single occasion when I've had somebody through the door here by, by accident, are you bed and breakfast customer, who has been um, really quite, maintained that, if you like, possible anti-hunting stance. So we're back into the communication again and explaining what we're doing. And as I've said all, all along, we're too, we're far too, it's far too easy sometimes to shy away and avoid the subject or avoid the conversation. But it's a conversation that we need to have because it's a, it's a conversation that we can, we can justify. Yeah, and no, I think uh, just as a concluding, a concluding comment to all of this, I think that that what the last thing that you just said there is absolutely key, and I think that as an industry we've probably been guilty of this over many many years, over decades, of not really explaining what we're doing, why we're doing it, and why it's of a ben- of benefit. I mean, there are, there's a, a lot of move now in, in recent years and uh, recent months to really get those positive messages out there to the public and make it accessible give them the information so that they can make their own judgment and explain why you're doing what you're doing. And I just wish we'd kind of done that a little bit sooner because I do think we still have a little bit of a fight on our hands to make sure that we can maintain the best interests of the wildlife and the use of the land that we know is the right way to do it. Or I'm not saying it's perfect, but the alternative from some areas and some sectors and some groups at the polar opposite of what we do, I think would just be vastly damaging, uh, not only to the, the wildlife and the landscape, but to, to the people as well. So with that, I, I'd just like to thank you, Chris and, and Richard, for taking the time to join us today. I think we've had a, a very, very interesting debate and covered a, a lot of topics in, in great detail. And uh, I'm sure that uh, at some point in the future, we'll, we'll get you both back on again. But thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to it. The podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud and YouTube. On upcoming podcasts in the next few weeks, we will have Royal Navy diver Chris Cunningham and he's going to talk about Exercise Antarctic Endurance 2016, which is a Royal Navy and Royal Marines-led expedition celebrating 100 years since Shackleton returned from Antarctica. That is going to be a really interesting discussion, and I cannot wait to do that to do that interview. It's uh, going to be a great insight, and it's a great expedition that everybody's going on. But they are not the only people who are doing something interesting soon. Uh, myself and my brother are also about to embark on filming the first episode of our Into the Wilderness series. For those of you who didn't know, it's not just the podcast that is called Into the Wilderness. We are about to launch our own uh, YouTube-based television series. Uh, mini feature film episodes. Uh, the first one I can let you know is going to be in Sky, uh, and that is going to be that's really exciting. We, it's been a long time building up to that, and we hope to be able to bring you the first of our six-part series, probably about February next year. We're going to have a big launch for it, but we will tell you a little bit about that uh, nearer the time. 
Thank you from me to everybody for listening to this podcast once again. It has been brought to you by the Scottish Association for Country Sports, who we once again thank for sponsoring us so that we can bring you all these insights and interesting debates with, with important people involved in the, the, the shooting and countryside industry. Well, thanks for listening.